Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls for another week of wandering the various rabbit holes that make this game so endlessly fascinating. Plenty of big issues on the table this week, though it's no surprise that none of them are actually new. However, what we do have this week is the perfect guest to help explore them, because at the very heart of the game are its playing fields, and that means that those in the business of designing said playing fields are also at the very heart of the game's past, present, and future. Canadian golf architect Jeff Mingo will be along in just a moment to shoulder the full burden of responsibility for golf globally, now and into the future, which is fantastic of him, and I'm something I'm sure he's looking forward to immensely. But before we meet Jeff and ruin his day, let me introduce my co-host in this weekly adventure we call good and see if we can't ruin his day as well. Logue, Adrian Logue, I should say. Good to have you aboard. Credit where it's due. You've done all the hard work in organising Jeff to be here today. No doubt you're looking forward to chatting with him as much as I am. I am. I've listened to Jeff on the Feed the Ball podcast a couple of times, and I spend those entire podcasts just agreeing with everything he's saying. And uh, Jeff uh, likes all of my tweets as well. So we're going to be- <laughs> Strap in- yourselves in for a love <laughs> be- It's going to be a furious agreement between Jeff and I today. So if you say anything out of line, Rod, it's two against one. In, so. in the UK, I think that they, they would say to you, like, you've officially been pulled. <laughs> That's what's happened there. Uh, fantastic. We're going to touch on your comments about Gil Hands from last week too, which attracted a bit of attention, but let's not start there. Let's get things underway with our guest. Now, regular listeners of the show will be more than familiar with the work of Derek Duncan and his Feed the Ball, Ball podcast. They'll also know how much time and effort Derek puts into creating his guest introductions. Well, I don't do any of that, but what I will note it is that our guest today has twice been a part of Derek's show. That puts him in some pretty elite company. What I can say is that Jeff Mingo is a golf course architect and that he's from Canada. And I also say the aerial photo on the homepage of his website is absolutely stunning and makes me want to go there. Jeff Mingay, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Where is that golf course? Well, that, that'd be Victoria Golf Club on the uh, southern tip of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. My goodness. There's a lot go- I recommend people go there and have a look. There's Jeff, a lot Jeff going Mingay. on there. Yeah, jeffmingay.com. It's, actually, it's a classy website. Congratulations, it Jeff. Really it really is. It is quite classy. <laughs> In this business, that's yeah. rare. It's beautifully done. Yeah. Well, I, I can, I'm proud to say that it's my partner, Sarah, and her company, uh, Certo Creative in Toronto, that did that wonderful job for for, for me. That's so all credit where credit is due. Credit where it's due and invoice where it's due, too. I'll be sending her a bill for that <laughs> shout-out that you've just given there. No, well, we, we, don't need to, we don't need to discuss that part of it. No, indeed. Fantastic. It really is fantastic. You've got tees out on promontories. Ah, it looks like they're playing across greens. There's a path. I'm trying to work out what's going on. Lots of short grass. All fantastic stuff. Victoria, Victoria is hard to figure out. Even when you're at Victoria, it's a, it, it's, it's actually an amazing place. I mean, it's a little miniature pebble beach, so to speak, which is kind of blowing it out of proportion. But seventy-eight acre property featuring eighteen holes, which you know, anytime I mention that to anyone, they shake their head in disbelief. If you know anything about golf design, you know there shouldn't be eighteen holes on seventy-eight acres. What's but, the average size, Jeff? What's, what's the minimum normally well, accepted for a golf course? These about days, I mean, if somebody you know, came to me looking to build an 18 hole golf course. I think you're looking at 200 acres minimum. If you're, you know, wanting a, you know, wanting a, a reasonably, a reasonably long golf course between 66 and 7,000 yards, you know, you need 200 acres. And at Victoria, I mean, it was Vernon McCann who, uh, who was a member there actually during the, during the teens and twenties, uh, after the turn of the 20th century, there was an existing golf course. There a couple of them since 1893. And in uh, 1925 McCann formalized the routing, uh, on that property as we play it today. And it's, it's one of the most amazing 
pieces of golf course design um, that I know of. I mean, to, to again, to have uh, not only make 18 holes work on 78 acres, but have it be ranked among, you know, the top 20 or 25 courses in Canada still. Uh, and it's beyond setting, too. The setting's spectacular, but it's a, a great variety of holes, arguably the best collection of 18 greens in Canada, I think. Um, so it's, it's lovely. They were my first client. Mm. I went off on my own in uh, 2009, <laughs> which I'm which I'm still flabbergasted by. I mean, to get your first client on the Pacific Ocean was quite a quite a thrill, and it's I'm, I'm even prouder that you know I've kept that relationship going for a decade now. So, in a funny way, Jeff, it can almost only have been downhill from there because this is an incredible <laughs> place to have started. A career. I don't mean that disparagingly, <laughs> well, but I, I wow, in, I, I was working for Rod Whitman still. And uh, I was kind of getting to the point where I was picking up some of my own clients and starting my own work. And the uh, I guess it would have been in the fall of 2008, I was working with Rod at Cabot on the Atlantic. And then I picked up my first client at Victoria on the Pacific. And I, uh, my thoughts were exactly yours, Rod. <laughs> I thought, okay, here I, I left Cape Breton on the Atlantic in uh, the fall and arrived uh, on the Pacific in February. Where do I go from here? <laughs> might just quit. It's true. I'll do this one, then I'll be done. I'll go and move on to well, accounting or something else. I haven't worked on the ocean since. <laughs> and that was years ago. So. <laughs> Tough to come by. We're going to talk about all that shortly, but I want to get your input on some of this. Now, Logue, let's just quickly go back to last week, and you had some things to say about Gil Hands. I haven't pulled sure. the quote, which I meant to. Now, I think, have I verbaled you on State of the Game, saying that you were critical <laughs> of Gil Hands? Well, I'll, Explain what you said, because a few people, I think, may have misunderstood. I think I might be amongst them. Well, the disclaimer that I gave to introduce my comments was that uh, we all have various constraints in our in the sort of projects that we do, and uh, and I think that's something that everybody can relate to. Like it, you, you do a project and you just you don't necessarily want it to be judged without your own little commentary about How what went into the decision making about everything. So uh, the main thing I was saying is I wanted to ask Gil what uh, what went into the decision making for basically sort of boundary to boundary manicured turf at winged foot and at a couple of the restorations he's done. So Marion, the photos I've seen of Marion look the same. Um, we'll see Aronomic on TV in a mm-hmm. week or two, I think. And also that looks the same. There's just boundary to boundary manicured turf. And it's a distinctly American thing, but there's this little um, uh, series of Gilhance restorations that have, have featured this and the bunkers are in the rough. The mowing lines just don't look good to me. Um, we discussed and, uh, they're, week, they're right? ridiculously narrow, so uh, it, it, it'd be a question for Gil to explain, you know, what what went into that decision making. And of course, there's the irrigation going all the way out into the rough, and it's just I, I, like I've said many USGA times now, it's a bad look for golf, and I can't believe the USGA think that's a great showcase for their premier event. Yeah. Um, so now is Adrian onto something there, Jeff? Gil, obviously, everybody, all course architects would work under the constraints. And the membership at Winged Foot, I'm guessing, would be different to the membership at a lot of clubs. They're very golfy, if I can put it that way. Great pride and tradition, a very golfy golf club. The setup would not be to do with Gil. But some of those points that Adrian's making there, do they ring a bell with you, Jeff? Well, the first thing it makes me uh, think of is how spoiled you guys in Melbourne are. Um, <laughs> if you know, only we were in Norwegian, yeah. stuck in You've Sydney, got, which is a stuck in Sydney. <laughs> 78 hectares is a huge area for a golf course in Sydney. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's, well, I mean, but I listen I listen to you guys talk on, on your podcast. Uh, I listen to Clayton. I listen to Ogilvy. And um, you guys are rightfully comparing everything to the great courses in the sand belt. 
which you know are arguably the best courses in the world. And simply, I'm sure you've heard a lot of that stuff just doesn't work in other places. You know, I mean, I don't know the specifics about Wingfoot um, uh, or any of the, you know, the other restorations you mentioned Gill doing. But, you know, things like mowing the fairway right up to the edge of the bunker. Um, you know, in a lot of circumstances in North America, that's not the easiest thing to do. And I know for a fact at Wingfoot, the bunkers were never built like that originally. Um, and, you know, I, I know that Gil and, and Jim Wagner were really, really intent on, on, you know, creating a look and a feel that was pretty authentic to what Tillinghast would have, would have created in the twenties. And that, for example, is one feature that, you know, the bunkers were never built that way. You have to build the, that bunker edge, as you know, you know, to be flat right up to the edge of the bunker. And a lot of those, a lot of the bunkers in, in at Wingfoot and other, uh, similar Parkland style courses in America, the leading edge of the bunker kind of rolls in, yeah. you know, and it's not, it's not easy to get that fairway, uh, you know, those reels down that slope that close to the bunker. And they certainly didn't have that type of equipment in the twenties. So when you're going for an authentic look, um, which I often do too, I, I, you know, that is, I love having fairway right up to the bunker, right in front of the bunker. But, and I often, because it's become a popular thing, uh, a lot of the renovation and restoration work uh, I do, I, I get asked that question a lot. Why don't we mow the fairway right up to the bunker? Again, it is ideal, but if you are going for an authentic look on some of these some of these vintage North American courses, it, it, it's just not the right call in, in every circumstance. Hmm. The, if that makes any sense, it being a subjective opinion. Yeah, that, that's one... That's a playability thing, and and I, you know, yeah, we we are fortunate to play a lot of courses here where the playability is improved by having that short grass around the greens as well, and and leading into bunkers. The the playability issues aside, although you know, I, I do think it's a better way to play a golf course. It's more about the sustainability and the look of that course that that I find objectionable, and having manicured turf way well away from all of the playing surfaces is is just something i just don't understand it's uh, mm-hmm. I, I just think that's a terrible look for golf in and the confusion i have is again if you do look at the sand belt it's very easy there the the turf just breaks up and you've got some sandy base and you might it might go into some hard pan or something and then a bit of tea tree. It bleeds beautifully, it, it doesn't bleeds it, from, it, from turf to... That's right. To where, where the water stops falling from the irrigation, it just sort of breaks up and it's beautiful. Um, and you might even get right. a little bit of wispy rough. Yeah. And parkland courses on clay or heavy soils, it, it's a different challenge, right? Because often grass is just going to grow in the clay. Like a weed. Uh, that's right. So, But I I don't think it needs to be irrigated and... and, and uh, fertilized and manicured yeah. um but in that in well, place of that what do you do in parkland rough yeah and, and in in a lot of in a lot of regions throughout north america i mean fescue and native grasses are, are as you just alluded to are a real battle you know i mean it's it's been made to made to seem like they're you know no maintenance or low maintenance and in most cases where, where superintendents have really, really good, thin, wispy fescue, it's, it's, a, it's a development over years, and it's, it's cultivating it out of the gate uh, uh, properly. Uh, you know, for example, the simplest thing is you don't want to plant it in, in fertile soil. You know, so in a lot of cases where we've succeeded with with fescue, we've we've stripped the good soil off, get down to the to the bony stuff that uh, you know, because that fescue wants to be dry and 
Um, there's just different tricks like that, that whereas in Melbourne, as far as I understand, I mean, it's fairly simple to keep those, you know, native grass areas um, looking good and yet still playable. Um, and that's the big challenge for us. I mean, over here, it's, it's, it's just keeping it playable where uh, it's not eating balls and uh, not preventing, uh, you know, people from playing a, a reasonable recovery shot out of it. it. It's a challenge in most, most regions. Yeah. And I don't think that what Sydney is somewhat the same. We don't have the benefit of the sort of soil profile that, that Melbourne, certainly in that sand belt area where you can cut those bunkers, those really sharp edges. That's hard to achieve. In fact, Harley Cruz told us he's done something to come out with a you had a product, did he not, to help him achieve that? Yeah, he uses the eco bunkers at uh, Kalara. They've got the um, the road base as the uh, the lining, and then they've got the this, that eco bunker product, which is actually uh, playing fields from the UK that have been lifted up off of like the artificial turf playing fields from the UK that are past their use by date. They've been cut up and shipped over and uh they they used to sort of create a revetted face for the bunkers and those those bunker edges will be around for decades <laughs> they'll be sharp they're not breaking down they're not putting yeah. in the recycled bin i think that's right it, it, it's a great look actually it's a very dramatic look because they're very sharp edged and on a parkland course they cast a nice they, they give you that nice black shadow across the top of the top edge of the bunker and then there's a little bit of sand flashed on the face so it's a really good look yeah. you know on a final note i'm just i'm thinking about wingfoot here and it's it just uh, made me think when, when i knew wingfoot was coming up you know i went back into the archives and sort of was looking at some pictures and reading a little bit of history just to refresh my memory and i kind of got excited about watching at least or even looking at because i'm not very interested in the pga tour game these days i more watch when i want to see a golf course on tv but i was quite curious especially considering gill was involved how this you know traditional u.s open setup was going to look and how it was going to play and you know as you both know i mean variety is so important in, in golf architecture and golf in general and after 20 years of or longer than that but at least two decades of pontificating about how great wide fairways are and how great mowing the fairways right up to the bunkers is and how great short grass around all the greens is. I was, again, I was, I was kind of interested to see Wingfoot, <laughs> you know, and see those narrow fairways li lined with trees and, you know, those big push up greens. I, I just felt like it was something different than we've all been talking about, um, you know, mo most of all for the last little bit. Well, I, I, if that makes sense, it does. Well, I thought it was an anachronism. Yeah. Like it was. You're in love with this word this last couple of weeks, don't you? <laughs> but the it, it's, time it's perfect. It's just like that's that's that exactly describes what's happened. They've, it's recreating those courses, that look and that uh, presentation of a golf course evolved the from 80s, isn't it? Yeah. the excesses of the '80s, and it's only possible at a club mm -hmm. with that ridiculous amount of money. And, uh, and and those were U.S. Open venues more often than not, and we didn't. We just did that stuff without any regard for um, what it looked like to other golf courses that can't afford to do that. And yeah, I just think it's a throwback to, the, to that look. You know, I, I said the same thing back in 2016. I actually went, went to Pittsburgh and, and uh, went to the f uh, second round of the U.S. Open at Oakmont. And I was walking around Oakmont and I was just in love with the golf course, even though it's traditionally not what I gravitate towards. You know, it's, it, it's narrow. It, there's 
too much rough for my liking. There's probably way too many bunkers for my liking. Um, wing foot, you know, set up very similarly. Thin, uh, or thin off the tee, narrow, I should say. Um, but for some reason, those golf courses, which were originally built for that purpose, seem to work better than, I mean, and I don't want to name names, but I could name a few other um, venues where they've played the U.S. Open where that setup isn't as exciting. Um, and I, I think it boils down to the architecture. I mean, the architecture at Oakmont and Wingfoot is simply more interesting even when it's set up narrow and long and difficult than, you know, a handful of other courses when you set them up similarly. Yeah. I mean, I'll, 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 I keep thinking of Medina. I'll be. <laughs> oh, you I, said, I, you I, couldn't I, help yourself. I couldn't help it. I, I blurred out everything that's on my mind. I was trying to hold it in. But, you know, if you if you set Medina up the same way as you set up Oakmont and Wingfoot, it doesn't seem to be as exciting. And you don't remember as many holes. It lacks the new you know, I've watched so many major championships from Medina. All I remember are those par threes going over the water to get yeah. you to the other side of the, the river. You know, um, there's just so much memorable architecture at, at Wingfoot and Oakmont that I think it, um, it overcomes. You know, it, it kind of doesn't make that setup yeah. seem as silly setup, as it, it might at other places. What you did touch on there, Jeff, is something I do want to explore here. And this is something which comes up on Derek's podcast often. And I love that he, he asks this question fairly regularly, which is what's next? Now, you're saying after 20 years of being basically browbeaten with the, the, um, Bandon Dunes, Bamboogle Dunes, Royal Melbourne, Wide Fairways, Little Rough, all that sort of stuff. And that's true. That, that, that's become a real kind of a matter. Now, it's now woke, unfortunately, in a lot of ways. What's right. next, which is the question that Derek often asks, where is the, the, where is the Mike Strands, the, the, you know, the gymming, the, you know, what comes next in golf course architecture? Because there's no question that that look and that those mantras have become a fad. It's sellable. Yes. Everybody's selling it. You know, people want to buy it. It's not the cutting edge stuff that it was in the mid nineties. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. I actually contributed an article to the society of Australian, uh, golf course architects journal a few years ago that was titled just that what's next in golf architecture. And I, I offered no answer. <laughs> well done. Did you get paid for that? That's brilliant. <laughs> No, they, they didn't pay, so I, I didn't. I didn't feel too bad about that. Um, but I went through the history of it all, you know. And the, and the most famous one, you know, the fo most famous analogy is, you know, pre World War II architecture falling into Robert Trent Jones's new era, uh, which then fell into Pete Dye's new era. Um, and you know, without taking up too much time with all that history. There needs to be, I think we are indeed at the point where something new um, needs to happen. I mean, we've got, when I was coming into the business, I mean, nobody knew or very few people knew who Tom Doak, uh, Gil Hans, and Bill Coor were. Um, thankfully, I got to know Rod Whitman, who's very good friends with Bill Coor. And I feel fortunate that I was in the early throws, you know, at the late 90s, early 2000s. I was kind of around, hanging around with Rod, seeing what all those guys were doing and watching them build their careers. And I've, I have so much respect for, for, for that and uh, for them and that style of architecture. Um, we've come full circle. I mean, there, you know, golf architecture basically started in 
you know, the early part of the 20th century. Um, different things happened up until now. And here we are 100 years later. We've almost come full circle. We've got Bill and Gil and Tom leading the charge and, you know, basically using the style and philosophies of all the great old architects from, from the uh, the Golden Age, which uh, which is the, you know, pre-World War II era, pre-Depression era. Um, and I think what that does prove to us is that, that what, that's what works best for golf. Because we've seen so many things happen, you know, after the pioneering efforts of Willie Park and Harry Colt and Alistair McKenzie and Donald Ross. Different things happened after those guys that didn't quite work as well as the stuff seems to have in the pre-depression era. So when I think about what's next in golf architecture, that creates a dilemma in my mind because different things have been tried and they haven't worked as well. And here we are again, back to square one. And, you know, we, we're building, we're seeing some of the best golf courses ever built being built now um, after a comparative lull um, from from you know the the 20s and 30s onward. So it's a really tough question. It, it I, I want to come up with the answer, but I'm struggling with it right now. Yeah, it's interesting. And I I see the arc of the evolution of golf course architecture as something that moves quite slow compared to other industries. You know, if you look at it, to become a competent architect. You can't just sort of build one green and you're an architect. <laughs> I, I feel like, if, and again, this is something I think people can relate to in their own jobs. When you try something, you actually often have to redo it 50 times before you actually get an okay result with that one thing, whether it be editing a photo or trying to write an email might take 10 goes before you're happy with <laughs> not, an email. Not for most people. No, though, but, but you, yes. But to achieve the outcome that you really want, like a world-class outcome in whatever job you're doing, and that's what architects are trying to do when they're trusted with a piece of ground is to produce a world-class. And you're not going to do that on your first green. You might not do it on your 50th green. You, you kind of need to have built 100 greens before you feel confident that you're starting to be able to put your vision in the ground. So I think because of that, architecture moves very slow and we, we get new bits of technology introduced like, you know, earth-moving equipment post-World War II and we experiment with that. And it, but it takes really decades to learn the lessons of whether those experiments have succeeded. And then I think the agronomy developments in the 80s and 90s is another example where we could grow grass everywhere, and so we did. And I think it takes decades to unlearn that and then to show restraint in how you use those tools, which I, I think leads to what's next, which is a simpler form of golf is, is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, th that's a really excellent point. Um you know, you look at the top golf courses in the world, um, you know, as per the golf magazine ranking, which I think has always been maybe the most, I don't know, I don't want to say credible, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty solid list. Um, look at how many of them were uh, created through evolutionary work by their original creator. You know, you'd look at Piner's number two, Donald Ross tinkered with that incessantly for yep. decades yep. before it became what it is oakmont same thing pine valley same thing mm -hmm. uh, uh now i'm gonna lose my Newfield i'm trying Village. to think of the top 10 <laughs> <Marion>. <laughs> 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 
Wow. Which one is that? Muirfield Village, he said. <laughs> well, is it in the top ten? I don't know. It's, it's, it might get there one but, day you know, if he keeps tinkering with it. I think I count. I think I counted it once, though. You know, I think like six or seven of the top ten golf courses in the world were really developed through, as you were saying, an evolutionary process over decades. You know, Muirfield wasn't what it is now, uh, you know, 120 years ago. Yeah. Garden uh, City would be one, right? That was originally, uh, was it Devereaux? And then Walter Travis came and redid it. I know you're involved with Garden City now. Is that right? Me? Yeah. I wish. No, oh, no. I just love yeah. Garden City. Oh, I've, heard, I've heard you talk about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I talk about Garden City a lot only because I love the golf course so much, but you're absolutely right. There's massive evolution there from Emmett to Travis tinkering with it, Travis continuing to tinker with it, and now Tom Doak and Jim Urbina have done some tinkering, including restoration. So, yeah, those golf courses, and I, I bring this up with a lot of my clients, you know, and it speaks to exactly what you were just saying. I mean, we can't uh, fool ourselves and think we're going to go out and work on – 18 holes on 150 plus acres and just nail everything to the point where no one's ever going to have to touch it again. Um, you know, golf courses aren't static. And, and as you say, sometimes, you know, you may get a slope wrong, you may get an angle wrong. Um, the more we're accepting of those types of things and accepting of the fact that, yeah, golf courses continually need work. Uh, you know, I mentioned Victoria, they've been my client for 10 years. I mean, we, we never seem to stop, you know, in, in terms of, you know, cutting trees back, filling in a bunker, restoring a bunker. Um, there's just always stuff to do and all the great golf courses, uh, all the great golf clubs, uh, throughout the world have recognized that for years. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing when you, when you admit something needs to be tweaked and, and you fix it. Like the game itself, Jeff, it's a journey, not a destination. Uh, and a golf course is a living, breathing thing. I think we often forget that. And you need to be allowed to, you said this once, I think like, it's always stuck with me. Must be good then. I, I, well, not necessarily because I liked it. So it's, it's not it's not setting the bar too high. But the notion that the the mistakes and the failures are genuinely important in that process. You, you, you kind of you don't know their mistakes until you've made them, yeah. and that's the only way you can learn either not to make them again or to correct them. And that's and you put it much more eloquently. It's than expensive that, to unmake them when you've when you've moved to yeah, like, go, moved golf courses around. Exactly, it's a hell of a canvas to mark up. Green. Isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Much. So. But I, I, I think that's another good point because I, I'll admit, I mean, I often do reference mistakes mm -hmm. that we've made. I mean, you'll run into – well, I run into situations on new projects all the time where I'll think, oh, I mean, I'll give you an example. We <clears throat> in, in Seattle, Washington, where it rains nonstop <laughs> through half the year, you know, directing water off the golf course and around features is, you know, the most important thing you can do in architecture. You know, we sit there and in committee meetings and talk about, oh, maybe this bunker should go here. No, maybe it should go there. Maybe this green should be like this or that. But by the time we get it on the site, we start building. All we're trying to do is direct water, you know, around bunkers and off greens and off fairways. And, um, you know, we've made mistakes where we've missed certain you know, flows coming off hillsides that ended up in bunkers and whatnot, you know, and when you make those mistakes, uh, you go to the next project and you remember, oh, geez, remember what happened there underneath that hillside where that water got into that bunker? That's a simple example, just, just you know, 
enforcing your point is that you're right. I mean, and I bet you'd get Bill Coor out here or Gil or Tom Doak and they'd say the same thing, you know. It's it's part of the journey, as you said, Rod. Especially with projects as big as good Lord, you can see them from aeroplanes. <laughs> so it's, it's it's not easy, is it, to get it uh, get it right first time? Yeah, that the looking at uh, the water is one of those things. When you're walking around a golf course with an architect, you expect the conversation is going to be exciting. Sort no, of stuff about none of that. <laughs> about oh, can't we just lift that green yeah, up there no. and move it over there but and put a tee there? Put a wave in over green, this ravine. And, fantastic. Yeah. And and the, but the conversation right. is exclusively about where, where does where does the water where does the water go? Does the water go? <laughs> Where's the water going to go when it rains? It's ninety nine percent. Especially especially in Seattle yeah. where we're working right now. Yeah, All you're thinking about is water. It reminds me of one of my favorite favorite sort of little life not lessons, but a life sort of pointer that I've ever heard, which was that second children learn to walk better than first children because first children, parents follow around and constantly catch. By the time they have a second child, they're bored with that and they let them fall over. (laughs) So when the kid's fallen on its face two or three times, it says, yeah, that's no good, and it learns to walk and not fall over, which is – there may be some kind of truth in that, I suspect. It might be an old wives' tale or an urban myth, but it does make some sense if you think about it, doesn't it? And it's true. You'll see the parents with first kids. They do. They follow them around with their hands out ready to catch them. Second kids like, oh, let him fall. He'll be right. Well, it's an interesting. I think I can segue this to the next thing I wanted to talk about with Jeff, which is Jeff does a lot of renovations and restorations, uh, especially, as we know, with McCann's work in, mm-hmm. in Canada. And uh, with uh, the th- one of the things I find interesting about renovations is that you rarely reroute a course when when there's a renovation or a Mm. restoration occurring. And I wonder if partly that's because a lot of those mistakes have been sorted out over Uh the years. Like you kind of know where the water's going and- So you're not suggesting Jeff falls on his face quite often. What you're (laughs) suggesting is that- There's there's less problems to solve when there's an existing routing and, you you know, the green locations are basically set and you can can actually then focus on the strategy of the course and it's not necessarily about some of those fundamentals, although there's always going to be things like Mm. that to fix. Thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, I think think it makes every golf architect either laugh a bit or a bit frustrated – when golfers offer opinions on design after the routing's in place, <laughs> you know, that's when it gets really easy to say, put a bunker over there, you know, uh, yeah. put, plant some trees here, uh, put, you know, change this green when the green's already in a great spot. You know, the, as we all know, the routing is the most important um, piece of the arc, golf architecture puzzle. And as far as, not rerouting as part of renovations and restorations that's true and not true um and by that i mean boy when you go renovate a vernon mccann course uh i've worked on eight of them and i have had never had an inclination to fix the routing and um, that speaks to mccann's talents and vision uh, and abilities as a golf course architect you know 100 years later you can't get his tees and his greens in any better spot than he put them um, but conversely, you often show up at golf courses that were, you know, designed by uh, someone with lesser talent, where you know there are fundamental um, things that are wrong with the routing that should be corrected. Uh, those are often the, the 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 more difficult projects to sell, right? Because as soon as you start moving tees and greens, um, the price tag obviously goes up. Um, but boy, there's a, I mean, there's a glaring difference between going to a golf course and you immediately after studying the routing, you immediately know if someone had a talent, um, for this work we do, uh, or didn't, 
Um, and certainly Vernon McCann. I mean, uh, he, he said it himself. He, he worked his first golf course was Royal Colwood in Victoria. It opened in 1913 and he, he died working in Washington state here in 1964. <laughs> so he worked for, mm. uh, what is that? Six yeah. decades or yeah. seven decades. And at the end of it, he said, I know people are going to change my golf courses, but I'll guarantee you something. They'll never change one of my routings. Wow. And, uh, I always thought that was as much arrogant as it was making a really, import, really important point, though. Or sending you know, a signal. Sure yeah. Put a bunker here or a bunker there and change all that stuff. But, hey, man, I, he, you know, he was making the point that he felt he nailed all the routings. And of all his courses I've seen, uh, uh, I can attest to it. If you know your strengths, I guess you know your strengths. And that's clearly a, a sample of that. Why McCann and not Thompson for you? Uh, Jeff, we think of Canadian golf course architecture, and I think most people around the world outside of Canada immediately think Stanley Thompson. We've had Ian Andrew on the show, who's a Thompson devotee, wrote the, the book about Thompson. Uh, McCann I know a lot less about, but you don't. You're a sort of a McCann specialist. Why? Well, part of the problem is Ian Andrew cor- cornered the Thompson market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no choice. Uh, no, Ian's a, Ian's a good friend of mine, and he's done some great work on on Thompson courses. But my McCann affiliation was really a coincidence. I, I um, when I was a kid trying to get into this business, I, I you know I'd go to superintendent conferences and try to meet people. And uh, one year, twenty some odd years ago, the conference was in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I did it more often than I do now. But back then, you know, I'd go try to see every golf course and in every city that I visited. So I made a list and at the top of my list in Vancouver was Capilano, Stanley Thompson. Okay. Definitely got to go up there. What other golf courses should I see? So I start listing Marine drive, Richmond, uh, uh, Lingara, um, and so on and so on. Uh, and all of these golf courses were designed by this guy named Vernon McCann. And I had never heard of him, you know, 25 years ago. Um, through the grapevine, I heard that uh, this gentleman named Michael Rist had done a bunch of research on Vernon McCann. He's a, Mike Rist uh, is a Vancouver guy, and uh, I hooked up with him on the same trip. So I went to see all these golf courses, and I had lunch with Mike Rist, and he started telling me who this guy was, and it was fascinating. And every time I visited one of these these clubs that uh, had a golf course that was designed by McCann, I would say, "Do you have any historic photos? Do you have any of McCann's plans?" And I'd get Whose plans? They literally in the Northwest had almost forgotten who Vernon McCann was. You know, he laid out some of his best golf courses there in the twenties and they'd evolved and he'd been dead for, you know, 40 years by the time I got there, there was really no historical documentation of what he did and his legacy had just been forgotten. So as I had, as I learned this, I honestly kind of felt genuinely kind of sad about that you know it it was obvious to me through what i'd learned through mike wrist and some of the research i'd done on my own that this guy was a pioneer you know in the vein of all the great architects he introduced you know golf architecture like world-class golf architecture to the pacific northwest starting in 1913 so um having learned that you know, I wrote a couple articles about him and whatnot, and, and I ended up getting uh, hired, as I mentioned, at Victoria Golf Club, which is my first client. And um, I still feel a little um, uh, sentimental about this when I say it, but just like McCann, you know, I did a little bit of work in Victoria, and, and that club has an affiliation with the uh, Pacific Northwest Golf Association. 
So some of the clubs down in Seattle started coming up to Victoria and noticing the work we were doing. Um, and then my phone started ringing, you know, Overlake. Well, you're the McCann guy. In Seattle called. You're the McCann guy, aren't you, all of a sudden? You've written some articles. Told, yeah. That's it. You're the yeah. McCann guy. If you've got a McCann, you ring Mingay. That's what you do. Uh, yeah, which feels a bit odd to me <laughs> because I didn't I didn't intend for it to be uh-huh. – it wasn't my business plan. No, no, no. <laughs> I guess you could say. It was It was really a coincidence about learning about this guy and, and really taking an interest in him and then restoring some of his most interesting work. And, um, you know, I'm flattered that people noticed and, um, yeah, I just kept getting calls from one McCann course, um, after another, um, we're in the midst right now. Uh, one of the reasons I'm in the United States, which is a whole other story, um, is because we are finishing a, a major restoration of Inglewood golf club in, uh, just North of Seattle. It, it was McCann's, uh, third golf course, uh, second golf course, sorry. Uh, 1919 at Inglewood Golf Club in Seattle, and I'm actually at his third golf uh, golf course at Manitou, uh, Manitou in Spokane, Washington. Right now, um, uh, looking down the third hole that we're restoring right now as, as we're speaking. So again, it it it's been very gratifying to um, bring attention back to McCann and 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 you know and, and kind of enhance his legacy through 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 what we're doing um i i think that's really important and uh you know when i got to overlake i, I always tell this story it makes me really proud when i got to overlake uh in seattle that not many people at the club even knew who verna mccann was um, by the time we finished our master plan did some work did some membership presentations they now have uh verna mccann's um uh signature on their on their flag uh, wow. on every green oh, no. so they've taken some some pride in the fact that their golf course was designed by by mccann and uh and again that that, that makes me really happy uh, he he put his heart and soul into golf and and really did a lot of great stuff in not only the pacific northwest but up and down the west coast here to to really solidify what golf and golf architecture should be so you wonder how many other it's, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun you know how many other McCanns we've got in history, don't you, areas? I've often heard Andy Johnson talk about Nipper Campbell, who did a lot of work around various parts of the – I know nothing else about him except that I've heard Andy mention him a bunch of times on the fried egg. So he might be another McCann. How many of them are there around the place? It all brings to mind – I wrote a column this past week, Jeff, which a lot of people liked, which was great. But I got – what I really enjoyed was somebody who disagreed with what I'd said. So my, the whole point of the column was that the golf course is the most important thing about the game. And that the problem with the game at the top level is that it's out of balance. We don't need to go through all those. We've made these cases a million times before. What I'm intrigued by, there's a couple of points this guy makes. One slash two, Greg, Greg, Gregory Brios. I'm not sure. I don't know where he's from. He took issue at first with it and then he sort of slept on it and he came back with a bunch of points about why he disagreed with the proposition that I was putting. And I want to get your thoughts and yours as well on this, Logue, and about why some of us are so enamoured with the notion of the golf course, while for others it's almost meaningless to them in the game, which is unusual. He says, I play golf to conquer course. It's an intellectual challenge, but golfers I know chase a good game before a good course. I'd rather beat a good field than play a casual round on a classic golf course. I don't get to play them, neither does anybody else that I know. I think there's a bunch of stuff wrapped up in there. Times change, all sports have changed. The gist of my argument was that ignoring the changes to the athlete focusing solely on the equipment, I think that's something separate to the whole course. 
it's inevitable that golfers are going to look like DeChambeau in the future. This is the tip of the iceberg. I think that's true and was part of what I was talking about, but not so much specifically to the players. And he thinks people are bitter that for the first time they're watching something that they're not physically capable of doing. I think that's interesting as well. There might be something to that. Um, but here's kind of the, the the crux of it. At that point, we'll be bifurcating so much that recreational golf and professional golf will be as similar as pickleball to tennis. I think we're already there. Yep, agreed. Yep. Uh, I don't think there's any relationship yep. between the two. To screw with the rules of a game that places everyone on the same playing field for the sake of a course or 30 is a waste of brain power, in my opinion. So, Jeff Mingo, would you talk to that a little bit? Because I, I do hear this from time to time, and I wonder whether there might be some truth to this. Those of us who are enamoured with golf courses, uh, we think you know it's, it's about all golf courses. But the way it seems to come across to people who disagree with this is that why are we changing the whole game for 100 blokes who play on about 40 or 50 different courses in the US and another 40 or 50 on the European Tour? Uh, why are we meddling with equipment for that? There's a, there seems to be a real disconnect in the argument that we're making for the golf course. My assumption is that you'd agree with me that the golf course is much more important than the golfer in the long run. But how do we how do we tell that story and have people come along and understand? It? Or are we cultish and in fact <laughs> we might be wrong? Well, that's astonishing to me that anyone can. Um, you know, to 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 want to just beat the field on a, anywhere rather than play a great golf course is again astonishing. But it also reminds me of one of the biggest problems we have in the game, and it actually affects our work a lot. Is again not to sound arrogant, but really, there's 50 great golf courses in the world, maybe. <laughs> like when mm-hmm. we look at what we really, really, really think is great. There's not that many great golf courses. And as you said, not many golfers, or as your the guy who read your article uh, suggested, not everyone gets to play what are considered to be the great golf courses. So what, what that gets to is that a, a large percentage of golfers don't even really know what golf is. They really don't. They haven't played the old course. They haven't seen the National Golf Links of America. They haven't been to Rome, Melbourne. You know, they haven't played Wingfoot. And never will, so, which I think which it, I think is part of the problem will. is now suddenly they've been excluded and there's a natural want to be against that, I suspect, because of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I guess what I was getting at too is that they don't have any context, right? So when we build something that's as extreme or we suggest building something as ex- as extreme as, as features we find at those courses I just mentioned, I mean, there's always kickback because, again, they've never seen this stuff. So they, they feel like it's just extreme to the point that it's ruining their good time, uh, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday with their friends or their wife or whoever they're playing with. Um, which is frustrating as an as a contemporary architect like me, because often we find opportunities to do to do something really really exciting, and we've got to throttle it back. Um, you know, whether it be because we know it's not going to be popular, or we've proposed it and we've gotten a lot of kickback from you know whether it be committee members, board members, golf course superintendents, whoever it might be. Um, you know, it, my wish would be to give a lot of the golfers and club members I know a little bit more context in terms of what 
you know, world-class golf and the best golf courses in the world really are all about how they look, how they feel, um, how they play. Uh, things are in fact unfair quite often when you're not playing well, you know, at many of the world's best golf courses. Um, so that context is, is that lack of context for most people is kind of unfortunate. Better architecture more broadly is something I've often sort of thought it might be one of the keys to the game. If we, well, this, yeah, this, that's a good point too. Yeah. I, I've got this thing that, you know, as a thought experiment, that what if you banned creation of all new golf courses? And oh, don't don't pass out there. If it's not law, it's just a, an idea. That <laughs> it's a thought had. experiment. Uh, and I don't I don't get any of the new ones. <laughs> well, that Bill, Tom, <laughs> exactly. So would golf really be any worse off? Because there's so many mediocre courses that could be lifted up to be great architecture. There's going to be no shortage of work if if my law goes into place. If you took the resources <laughs> devoted to building new courses, even there's not a lot yes. that goes on these days, and put it into um, improving public golf facilities in particular, yep. which is what the game needs, that could have an enormous impact, couldn't it, Jeff? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I mean, I, I love that in theory, but again, you know, you've got to have clients, club members, uh, who who have some context in terms of what great golf can be. And I presume that nowadays, you know, it, it's a lot easier, and I keep bringing these guys up, but I think I think it's relevant. It's a lot easier for Bill Coor or, or Tom Doak or Gil Hans to walk in, you know, based on their resumes with, with bigger things, to sell some extraordinary architecture um it's it's you know i'm at again i'm at manito golf and country club here in, in spokane washington there's some really cool mccann stuff here you know but we're getting questions on depths of bunkers and and different things uh I, I, you know regarding features that i don't even that i actually consider benign <laughs> right so whenever you take things up a notch um you know, you've really got to you've really got to sell it, and you've got to you've got to give people context in terms of why you want to do it. So, I remember reading, you know, William Flynn. I've never forgot this quote. He he said, you know, as a golf architect, part of his job is to be an educator, mm. and I've never really forgotten that. So, when we do these plans and we 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 have committee meetings and board meetings, and we're meeting with superintendents and giving member presentations, I always remember that. You know, you try to be a little bit of a teacher. To, to people who haven't seen this stuff, you know, without being arrogant or without trying to, to push any kind of agenda, just, just educate people on what this term is so vague and kind of silly too, but it, what real golf is, Yeah, you know, I feel like most people around the world don't even play what we know to be real golf. The trick is to teach without coming across as supercilious. It's the might be the most right. difficult thing in the world to do, and and there's a term for it. And we know that it's difficult because there's a whole bunch of people who think we are golf snobs. Yeah. Quote, well, if you right. walk into the board meeting with a top hat on and a and a monocle, and <laughs> did, did you do this, like? <laughs> no, it sounds like a personal experience. But I, I think uh, one well, one thing people can relate to though is that you need to be able to explain your rationale for for what you've decided to do with something or why you've mm. why you're deciding to present a certain solution for a problem and a lot of, and golf course architecture to me seems like very relatable to other professions where you're actually just solving a problem you've got it's a it's like a puzzle you've got a piece of land and you're wanting to produce the best result out of it and there's a certain solution that there's a, there's a myriad of solutions that you can present 
to square that circle. But the um, the, the rationale that goes into whatever decision making you've done, I think, is the interesting bit, and it's, it's part of the sales of, of uh, what you're presenting to a club. Yeah, Adrian, that I'm so glad that you just said that because honest to goodness, I every time I present a master plan, I try to have that kind of reasoning and rationale behind every recommendation. Because I don't want to get in there and say, well, let's put a bunker there. Why? Well, just because Jeff Minge is a visionary. He's so creative. <laughs> just <laughs> a know. dogmatic thing. Let's yeah. just, it, it's, yeah, it's just going to look great over there. Um, I never want that to be my answer because I think that's um, extravagance, you know? And I, I think a lot of the best architecture is really fundamentally based, as you suggested. I mean, you're really trying to move water. You're trying to stop a ball from going out of bounds. You're trying to get more light on a green surface. You know, there's got to be um, practical reasons why you're doing what you're doing. And I find that I'm most happy with projects when the decisions I've made, um, you know, flow from that that kind of theory and philosophy. Yeah. I think it's what uh, separates. There's, there's an artistic side to golf course architecture, but it's where there, there is a line between art and problem solving and practicality or pragmatism. And uh, if it was just pure art, it would be a Monet hanging on a wall. But if it's, uh, if it's trying to solve a problem, <laughs> you, you in a tractor or something. You, you arrested Jeff? Is this what's happened here? Jeff? Oh. I'm back. Ah, oh, you're excellent. back. Good stuff. That um, is that's a bit of a construction site uh, complication there. I apologize. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Um, the uh, the 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 thing I was saying was brilliant, by the way. But it was, it was about- <laughs> it's a shame you missed it, Jeff. <laughs> it was, um, just the distinction between art and pragmatism and golf course architecture. There's room for art in it and for creating something that's beautiful, but it it has to solve all these problems as well. And uh, if it was just purely about art, you wouldn't have a very functional golf course or a very fun golf course to play. A bunch of analogies you can make. It's like the house. The house has to have solid foundations before the beautiful house can be built on top of it. The, the practical has to be in place before the artistic That's right. can be considered. Um, I, I want to get back and yep. respond to your Twitter friend. Oh, right, yes. I've, I've just one thought to add to that um, is that uh, every course you play, I think, has some little corner of the course or some aspect of one shot or maybe multiple shots or various spots around a course haven't the element of great golf. Mm, of um, I, I think you can find that in every golf course. It doesn't matter where it is. Um, there's there's elements of great golf in every course. And often it's things that people consider unfair, like like <laughs> Jeff said. I mean, where I play, yeah. there's a fairway where if you don't land the ball on the right-hand edge of the fairway, it, it runs so severely that you won't you you can't hold the left-hand side. Like uh, any ball landing on the right-hand side tends to go all the way to the left-hand side. Uh, but, you know, there's plenty of players who can cope with that by just hitting a little fade into that slope and you can hold it into the slope. And that's that's something where it goes from being unfair to being something that's actually um, having you think about your shot a bit more. And and I always what enjoy you, that shot when it breaks. What if you can't hit a fade like me? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that's on it's you, not Jeff. Go out and that's learn how to fade, mate. But there's there's elements of great golf, whether you know it or not. You're well, this experiencing is, elements yeah. of great golf in every golf course you're playing. This is what I come back to quite often. You'll, it's not uncommon to hear people, particularly if you start talking about course architecture, who will tell you, I don't care, not interested. Not interested at all in golf course architecture. And if you ask them, do you have a favourite hole? Inevitably, they will say yes. 
So you do have an interesting golf course architecture. Yep. If one hole can be deemed better than some others, then that's an interest. Now, whether you th- so most of the time, it's really about how you think about the game, what you think the game is. Now, I get it that for a certain portion of people, and I suspect if they're any good, a lot of them end up being professionals, it is about the competition. We know there's yes. a bunch of professionals over history who've simply stopped playing once they stopped competing. They just happened to be born with the gift for incredibly good golf. They competed. They made a living at it. Once they could no longer compete, they hung up the clubs because they got no love for golf. Then you've got the other side, which is Clates, who, as he has said himself, probably should have been a golf course superintendent rather than a pro because his love of the game is sort of all-encompassing. So I get that, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the other point I would make is for those people who say they've got no, no interest in course architecture, if you're only interested in your score, understanding some of this stuff will actually help you play better, will actually help you score better. Um, rather than just sort of blazing away at each shot, some thought about how the course is laid out is kind of important. But you I know think- what's funny about you know what's funny about that Rod is that I, that's that Bobby Jones quote close to it, right? Where he said, "The more you know about golf uh-huh. course architecture, the better you're probably going to play." Mm-hmm. I've often argued that because I'm so interested in golf architecture, <laughs> I'm, the- whenever <laughs> I whenever I play, I can't concentrate on my own game because I'm looking at things and I'm you know, studying greens and I'm looking around so much. So I guess there's that fine line between. <laughs> it's about what you're concentrating <laughs> knowing, on, Jeff. Knowing enough to help yeah. your game or being so obsessed with the architecture that you're making a double every other hole because you're thinking about something you saw or you're taking a picture or whatnot. <laughs> as the 13th at Augusta teaches us, it's a prime example as it so often is of a lot of this stuff. Take the non-thinking golfer there, just the golfer who just hits it and gets it. They'll hit it off the tee. They'll hit it as close down to the water in front of the green as they can. And when they get there, they've got a pitch that touring pros hate, can't play. They've no shot if the pin's on the front of the green because they've given it no thought. The same player, if they were to think about it, would lay back 100 yards and hit a full wedge to the green. And that's a very sim- – and I, you see that with the players you play with. On every par five you play with amateur golfers, essentially they go, drive a three-wood, what do I do now? It's like, well, if you hadn't hit the three-wood, you'd have a quite playable shot. But now you've smoked your three-wood and you've got a 45-yard shot over a bunker, and it's impossible, and it's on you because you gave it no thought before you played it. But that, they'll, And they'll do the same thing again next week and the week after and the week after the week after. I hope Scott yeah. it's not listening because you know, it's all about proximity to this, the hole. <laughs> if you can play. This, <laughs> that's funny. This is very relatable to a conversation I had yesterday, actually. I was at Wing Point Golf and Country Club on Bainbridge Island, uh, just west of Seattle. And I built a hole there, 240-yard par three, only because it it starts at the clubhouse, plays down to downhill to a road. So there's 240 yards there. So we used the whole the whole the, the entire piece of ground that was available to us to to build this hole. It's Redan-esque. I hate to use the term Redan, but there's a big hill on the right, and the proper shot is to play it off the hill, land it short of the green, and have it trundle down to the to, to the green, which is on a right-to-left angle down the hill. Well, they call it a par three, and club members there are obsessed with the fact that it's a par three. They can't seem to play it as a golf hole, right? That's what your that's what your um, comments about the thirteenth at Augusta reminded me of. I mean, if we could, and this is this is cliche too, but talking about dropping par, but not enough golfers think about just trying to get mm. the lowest score. You don't have to hit the green in regulation. You don't have to call getting stuck up on the hill on the right unfair. Um, you know, the conditions are the same for everybody. Um, just 
find your ball, hit the next shot. And again, I think that's another, I don't know how that developed in golf, but strike play golfers thinking about Mm -hmm. par and these things being unfair. Again, it's, it's a lack of context because if you take things at national golf links, if you take things at the old course at St. Andrews, I mean, you could label so many things unfair. It's the most ridiculous term in, in, in modern or contemporary golf. I mean, um, if there weren't things that weren't quote-unquote unfair, we'd be playing a pretty boring game is the way I've always interpreted it. My favorite quote about that was Tiger Woods, who in his instruction book, I don't know how much of it he actually wrote, but he just pointed out very early in the book, it is the inherent challenge of the game that makes it interesting. If everybody went out the first time they played and shot 61, they'd go, yeah, it was all right, and they'd go find something else to do. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it's so devilishly difficult and unfair, right from the simple mechanics of learning how to hit a golf ball to then learning how to play golf, and they're two different things. I mean, hit it over the back of the sixth green at Royal Melbourne West, you could bleat that it's unfair. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but you still got to get it in the hole from there. Yep. Uh, and stroke play right. is the answer to your question, Jeff. That's how we ended up there. Stroke play and professional golf, like, which is not to say that it's wrong, but that's where that mindset comes from. If you play match play, par doesn't matter. It can be a hoopy match club where you know, exactly. it's incredibly so, unfair. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of my favourite things that happened to us, I went to the UK in 1997 with my very good mate, BJ, Brendan James, who's the editor of Golf Australia. He was in the, in the studio here last week. And we were at, I think it was Prestwick, one about the 11th, I think it was a par five there. And uh, my caddy relayed, we had caddies, and the caddy that I had relayed this story where a hundred years earlier, you know, a lord and a peasant were playing a match, and they got to this point, and the lord said to the peasant, how many you had? And the peasant said, eight. And the lord said, it's a ding-dong battle, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. You both had eight shots, so, you know, the match is on. It doesn't matter how many it takes you to get. So that, that's where it happens, is the notion of stroke play, which is where par comes from. There's no par in match play. Right. You know, so... Uh, so we can see how that sort of developed. But it is quite a shame in so many ways that – and people are so resistant to the notion of match playing. If you suggest – well, oddly, as a formal competition, but they love it as a side game. Yeah. So the Wednesday game at Mangrove Mountain was always me and my mate against you and your mate for the chips, and it was always a match play format. And I always liked that more than the competition of the day. But yet, you make it a match play event, and people are like, oh, I don't want to play that. It's because – well, I can see where you're going with this, and it's because of handicapping, isn't it? People want to be able to submit a score for handicapping. So, well, look, well, that's part. Well, that's just the obsession with stroke play. Handicaps don't really matter in match play either. You know the guys you're playing against. But in a club situation, you generally know the guys you're playing against, and roughly what you should be giving or taking to make that work. I think that's probably fairly true. So that's a whole other thing. They're all internal golf discussions about the game, and that's what interests us, and that's why we love the game. They're the things that we enjoy talking about. Jeff, golf's just part of a broader world. There's a uh, situation arose here in Australia earlier this week, a story in a paper down in Melbourne. During the COVID lockdown, golf has been off the list of uh, uh, legal activities, for want of a better term. People haven't been able to play golf. So some local residents nearby to a public golf course in Melbourne have been cutting open the fence and going walking in there to the point where now they've decided, this is really nice, we'd like to take this over, get rid of the golf and just have it as a park. Now, this is not... For all sorts of reasons, that's one way that can happen. But for all sorts of reasons, public golf in particular is under pressure because of the space it takes up, the resources that it uses, uh, and people who don't play golf look at it and say, well, back to the image problem of golf, here's a bunch of rich, white, middle-aged men just just taking this entire great, massive piece of land and using it for their own entertainment. What responsibility 
to golf course architects, golfers generally, but golf course architects I think of in particular here have to come up with solutions to some of these issues. The ultimate solution is going to be whether you like it or not, we need to learn to share public golf You've got courses. to give ground. We golf, have, golf has to give ground somehow. For public golf courses. Can't protect everything. No. Yeah. So th- does course architecture have a role to play there? Because the first the first thing you'll hear, and we already heard it a bunch of times, is well, it's not safe. You can't have people walking on golf courses. They get hit by golf balls. Mm-hmm. What do we do about that, Jeff? Well, quite a coincidence, actually. When I woke up this morning, I was doing a little bit of reading in uh, Toronto, where I live. Um, there was an article in the Toronto Star about the uh, city council in Toronto um, is entertaining uh, alternate uses for five, I think it's five municipal co- courses that the five, city yeah. has. Yeah. This is an election yeah, issue, there, was it not? In the mayoral, one candidate said they were going to close all the golf courses and make them parks, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, there's some people talking about that, but but uh, leveler heads are actually talking about alternate uses. How can you take that, you know, whatever it is, 150 or 200 acres, and as you just suggested, um, make better use of it than just for golf? Um, and I sound today like I don't have the answer to anything, but, um, I don't have the answer to that, but I certainly love the challenge of that. I think that that's a wonderful question to ask. Um, can we continue to incorporate golf on these properties and then also allow other city res, uh, residents, um, to use it in other ways. And again, I'm not sure what the, the, the concept may be, but, um, boy, would would I ever like to put some thought into that? I, I, it's the first thing I thought of when I, uh, when I, um, read that article this morning was, um, boy, I I would love to, um, you know, to put some, uh, energy and some thought into, uh, thinking about those municipal golf courses in Toronto and, and how might they be better utilized to make everyone, feel like uh, that particular piece of ground is available to them. Because the broader answer has to be yes, doesn't it, Jeff? The broader answer has to be yes, it is possible. And then it's a matter of figuring out that, I mean, if we can fly to the moon, we can learn to share golf courses, surely. Right. Yep. That's how you do it. Yeah. But I think there's a very, very creative. Uh, there's some very creative opportunities out there. Andy Staples has done some great work in this area. It has to be said. We had mm-hmm. him on the ICEC podcast mm-hmm. last year, the year before, and yeah. he's very big on this community golf idea. And it really is just all it requires, Adrian, is a bit of a shift in mindset, particularly on the part of golfers. That's right. Yeah, I think golfers need to be tolerant of people uh, not understanding golf mm-hmm. when they're when they're traipsing across a fairway. Um, there, there's a there's a rule I always call on that you know people aren't doing things for malicious reasons. They're doing things often just out of naivety. And if somebody's just traipsing across the fairway, they're not sending a big fu to the golfer standing on the tee waiting for them to get past. They're actually just probably clueless about golf. And the best thing you can do is wave at them and say hello and as you, wait for them to go past. And then when when you walk near them, ask them if they're having a nice day and. And what a what a wonderful place it is to be sharing. You know, I think that's that's how we live and let live <laughs> with with these things. That and also um, establishing tea parties on yeah, the tea uh, parties. Of course, it is. The I, I've, I've the got this concept, Jeff. Where we should tea, tea grounds are flat. They're often in shade. They've often got a little bit of coarse furniture, uh, and they're often the safest place to be standing on a golf course is on a tee. Not all tees, but most tees. And uh, they're perfect little picnic grounds. You've rent, got you've got golfers out. coming through. Yep. 
every uh, free entertainment every five to ten minutes for entertainment and uh, yeah you just uh, have, sure. a little, have a little picnic ground at the back of every there tea, really is something in that and tea you, party. you could rent that out for five bucks on you Trade, know trademark register yeah fantastic what happens to people when they take up golf Jeff because the responses to that article were full of people who unlike Logue suggested if you see somebody on the golf course you should try to hit them with your ball and if you do then you get a free drop and you also get an extra stake at the point <laughs> some of this sort of yeah you know, I mean the, the lunatic fringes on both of but what happens to people as golfers people will stand on a golf course and com- and in all other areas of life they're perfectly reasonable but they will adopt the complete opposite stance to what Logan's just taking there. And if somebody was to appear on the fairway, they'd start yelling and screaming, yeah. get off the yeah, radio. Idiot. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. What is that? Why does that happen to golfers? <laughs> boy, oh boy. I don't have an answer again, but I certainly I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a fascinating question. Which I, I I don't have an answer for. You're really failing this responsibility for the game for the whole future, Jeff. I'm, I'm starting to get a bit nervous. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure we I should know, have picked you guys. Yet. We've been talking for an hour, and I haven't answered one. You question, haven't solved so any of like the. That. Any of the problems? I know, but you're right. We have been talking for now, so we better start to wrap it up. But Logan, I know you. Particularly- I, I, I didn't. I didn't know all these heady questions were going to. Ah, so you haven't listened to the show. None of these are new. I can assure you. Uh, I think you wanted to ask Jeff about St Andrews in particular. He did a fabulous feed the ball episode with Jim Urbina and Derek on their there, salon. Oh, there was some amazing stuff, and we're probably not going to have time to get into it today. But a couple of the. the- the takeaways, and I really highly recommend people go back and listen to this uh, feed the ball salon episode with with Jim Urbina and uh, and Jeff, uh, hosted by Derek Duncan. But the, a couple of the things Jim raised them early in that podcast, talking about the old course having no boundaries, and uh, also the randomness of the old course. So those were two topics that uh, the whole podcast was really sort of revolving around those couple of topics, and I. Uh, I thought that was absolutely fascinating and really nailed the spirit of the old course. If you're trying to explain the old course to somebody, if you could just focus on those two concepts, I mm. think that that explains a lot of it. And it's not too much to take in that, you know, the the way the holes are set up, they're, they're not uh, they're not conforming to a corridor of play. There's there's effectively no boundary there. And uh, th- there's a there's a line of charm, I think, at the old course. Mm-hmm. Oh. Like if you didn't tell somebody that. Uh, with with few exceptions, I think the seventh is a bit of an exception where you get confused about what green you're meant to hit to. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you you, pres- you can see lots of flag sticks out there at various times, but I think you're very rarely confused about what green you're hitting towards. So there's this line of charm in within the this concept of no boundaries. And also the, just that randomness is amazing and it's it's something where I often call into question just how important routing is, and I know that's going to be horrible. Uh, you're not going to want to listen to that, Jeff. But routing, sometimes I just feel like it's overrated when you look at a place like the old course where the routing is essentially following an arbitrary rule of just you know going around counterclockwise around this. It used this to property. be the other way, and they do occasionally still play that. I wonder what the course is like. Correct, yeah. Whether it's better as it is. Yeah, but, but it's it's arbitrary rule, and uh, and I, I kind of feel like North Berwick's a bit like that as well, where it's just it's fairly arbitrary. There's a rule set, and you just sort of follow that rule. You're following one boundary fence, and you come back along another boundary fence, and uh, that's surely not the way to make best use of the land. And yet, it it introduces this randomness to where hills end up being and where swales are and where bunkers end up getting placed and where out of bounds comes into play and all of that sort of stuff where uh, you just don't have that randomness in a 
in something that's been meticulously planned and you know done in a in a CAD program. Um, so, nor, nor is it easy to convince people that you should have it, is it, Jeffrey? Based based on what you just told us earlier, is that if you suggest well, something like the old course hotel with the wall behind, or it doesn't go down well, does it? No, but to Adrian's point, I mean, it's a lot easier um, to achieve what 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 you were describing adrian when you're just on a rumpled piece of kind of flat ground right you can just have this big landscape for golf and you pick 18 spots to cut the holes and i love it just like you do there's just this randomness of ground and you're just trying to get to that one spot there's not even a hole per se (laughs) you're just trying to get from here to there and then you set up 18 of those those little challenges but not a lot of pieces of ground accommodate that kind of randomness or that linear routing um and then have it work so well just because of hills and roads and other boundaries and you know those those are just unique pieces of ground that that work really well uh um you know conceptually um that way but that that those are those are unique i mean those, those are anomalies in in the world of golf course architecture to find pieces of ground like that it's a, it's, a good, it's a good answer. Yeah, it's a far too good yeah, an answer. Yeah, I'll, I'll edit that out so you don't look quite so silly, Logan. We'll, we'll fix that up. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I, did I recover from all the things that I That's right. You finally had an answer. That's exactly right. You finally had an answer. Clayton often says, Mike Clayton often says, that all of the answers essentially to golf course architecture, I think I'm probably verbally in there, something along the lines of, you know, pretty much all the lessons you need to learn can be found at the old course at St Andrews. Is that in fact the role of the designer, Jeff, given that you know you can never get another piece of land like St Andrews, but to take the broad concepts that make it interesting, those shades of grey rather than the black and white golf challenge that some modern courses present, is that the role of the designer really, is to how to adapt those broad concepts to whatever piece of land you happen to be working with? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think what, what St Andrews teaches us most is that, like, you know, and I can't believe I said this in the Feed the Ball podcast. I can't believe the idea of creating a course that is literally multiple, multiple golf courses hasn't been done more often. I mean, you know, the greens are so big at St. Andrews. The fairways are so wide. The teeing grounds offer such a variety in terms of setup that depending where the tees are, depending where the pins are, depending how the wind's blowing – I mean, St. Andrews is an infinite number of golf courses, uh, even though it's technically an 18-hole golf course. Um, And it's just puzzling to me why that idea hasn't been, you know, carried out more successfully, more places over the past century. Mm -hmm. You know, I I played the loop at at Forest Dunes up in northern Michigan, uh, Tom Doak's reversible course. Uh, genius i mean it was i was looking forward to it and expected it to be really good and it's really good and again when you see that i I just i just can't believe that that uh that idea hasn't been carried through more often thomas's course within the course is the one that intrigues me that was a just completely grown over i think it was at la country club he did it didn't he Uh, but the notion that as a member you could have literally four golf courses in one, play a different golf course every week of the month, and that you wouldn't think that's a fantastic idea that that hasn't caught on. That just, 
I can't understand why. Taps into something we well, talked about here. Is, is, one of the reasons, though, is as I just said, is, is that it takes a, a unique and a, and a special piece of ground to accommodate that concept the way that St. Andrews does. Mm. And, and Doak was lucky, not only not only lucky, because what he did is very smart and on the border it is genius but he he found a piece of ground that was wide enough not hilly not too hilly um that could accommodate that and i just think in a lot of cases when you have developers finding pieces of land you know those, those types of sites that will accommodate that concept i think are just few too few and far between unfortunately hmm. I've, i played that the bobby jones course in atlanta the which is reversible as well went from being i think it a nine hole course on a very small piece of land to being a reversible 18 hole course it turns out you can fit 18 holes in uh, you know what was nine holes of land because the double greens are effectively doing double duty like there's uh there's opportunity for much more golf to be fit into a small piece of land um because you know where there were nine greens though if you make some of those not all necessarily but make some of those into double greens uh, you're kind of just more efficiently using that piece of land and you can have 18 holes reversible. And it works really well there too. It's a kind of a boring piece of land. There's one big hill that's really the only feature. But mm. um, There's not a lot of the boldness in really modern well. architecture, is there, John? I don't mean to necessarily blame architects. I think the, the, the game as a whole is not very accepting. But if you, if you play those, I think most people who go to Scotland, well, Ray Morissette says they have a lobotomy on the way home, most of them. But you go to Scotland and you suddenly <laughs> see golf, what you would, what you were sort of referring to earlier as, as proper golf, it's bold, isn't it? It's bold and it's occasionally scary and it makes your heart race and things that never happen on and sometimes completely inscrutable. Yeah, like, why? Why is there a hill? Yeah, in I just this don't spot? exactly. Like, I don't understand you know, this at all. What's the point yeah, of this just sort of thing? Completely inscrutable. I mean, some of the best holes that I I've personally designed are the ones that that golfers at the clubs I've 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 made those holes I dislike the most. For that very reason, it's um, yeah, it's it, it's it's tough. Yeah. Um, what did McKenzie say about Cypress Point? He, he was worried that it was no good because there weren't enough complaints about it when it opened. Mm. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. isn't it? It's but it's true. And, Everybody uh, loves it. What, well, then what do we do? Yeah, wrong? that's right. We better get back there and redo it some in some way because it's, it, it it isn't right. We're a funny breed, aren't we, golfers? Humans are bad enough, but once they take up golf, <laughs> they turn into incredibly complex yeah. animals. Don't we? It's, we don't know what we want. I ju- I just wish that people and I was going to tell this story earlier. Um, you know, it's a, it's another Greg Norman story. I read that Bruce Edwards was asked what the difference was between Greg Norman and Tom Watson when they were both number one in the world. Cause he caddied for both of them when they were number one in the world. And he said, Oh, that's easy. He said, if, if Greg drove it down the middle and we came up upon the ball and it was in a divot, he would look at down at the divot and he said, I can't believe it's in that divot. I just hit the best drive I hit all day. This is bullshit. You know, the, and then he said, if the same situation happened with Tom Watson, Tom Watson would walk up to the ball, look down at the divot, think for a second, reach for a club, look Edwards right in the eye and say, watch this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, fantastic. It's very talented. Yeah. Of course, the crazy thing is Greg Norman's had, capable of doing that too. We had more golfers with that attitude. Yeah, absolutely. From like, The same attitude, by the way, as a five-time Open champion. <laughs> mm. You know, I think we'd be a lot better off in a lot of ways in golf. Now, are you saying – Jeff, that divots in the fairway shouldn't be ground under repair. Is that what you're saying? 
<laughs> I've never even considered that. No, I, mean, the I can't believe it's a discussion. No, genuinely I can't, can't, I can't either. Discussion. We're in the minority. I can assure you. I think we are. Dale Hayes be, told be me. Be prepared for the uh, the emails. Dale Hayes told me I did an interview with him. He's in South Africa for the thing about golf, and he said that it's so rampant in South Africa now that it's just it's been happening for so long. It's accepted that you just improve your lie every shot. That really shook you to your core, didn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah, bring this up a few times. The R&A have been <laughs> writing letters and sort of going, trying to educate golfers in South Africa. That is not how the game works, but it's now part of the culture. Yeah. And the push is on for the, for the you know, the divot to become ground under repair, uh, which will just be horrendous for the game. I'm preaching the choir here, but we all know that the most exciting shot in golf is, is a successful recovery shot. Yes, it is. It's what makes the 380-yard drive so pointless, Jeff. They, they are never the highlight reel. At the end of this year, the PGA Tour will release the 5, 10, 20 best shots of the year as voted by the or whatever it was, and it'll be on YouTube and it'll be on PGATour.com, and none of them will be a drive. None of them. They're never the most interesting part of the game, but they dominate everything else about the game. So, anyway... They're new concepts which have never been raised before, so there's some some gold in there for people who are just listening for the first time. Nobody's ever brought any of that stuff up before. We are broken. Norman, of course, famously the Fred Couples thing, right? Yeah. We've all got our names on <laughs> yeah, the back. That's right. Greg, just put it back in your stance and yeah, <laughs> get it yeah, out of there. Yeah, exactly. And punch it out of there. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's had its impact on various tournaments over the years. I mean, Payne Stewart landed in a divot on the 18th at Olympia. Well, he was done in really by the flag on the 18th. At Ogilvy was in a divot on the 18th at Wingfoot. Well, that shot that he played there is still completely underrated. I know the one at 17 the that he hold was – Yeah, no, the, 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 the pitch on yeah. 18 was – I think Tiger left it at his feet just this, this past uh, US Open. So uh, some amazing stuff there. Jeff, we must let you go. Uh, we can't let you go without saying Canada is punching above its weight in golf course mm. architecture and you're doing your bit. So Keith Cutton. Uh, Ian Andrew, Rob Whitman, Rob Whitman Riley Johns, Riley Johns, well. yourself. I'm sure, we're missing some people out there. So we've got a couple to get through that we need to get on the pod. We haven't had Rod Whitman on the pod. Is he a bit hard? He's, I know Derek's had him on his podcast, but I'm not sure he's particularly keen on publicity. Is he, Jeff? He's he's a much quieter in the background kind of guy. Rod Whitman, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I've always respected about Rod is that he's he, yeah he he keeps himself. He he doesn't have much to say. He lets his work speak for for him. Um, and that speaks very well for him. But I'll tell you what, is when I listened to the feed the ball with, with Rod on it, the first thing I did was text Derek and, and, and uh, congratulated, uh, congratulated him on getting Rod to really talk about some, some really interesting stuff. So uh, once you get him talking, I think he'd be a great guest. It's another one of our rabbit holes, but the contribution that podcasts like Derek's are making to the game you, you can't know, but I think in a hundred years, golfers will look back and say that was important stuff. Or that that whole I agree that whole sort of podcast. You know, there's hundreds of them at the moment, obviously, and we'll see how that shakes out. But you know, it's the way these people, great architects, are documenting their absolutely. their thoughts. You would have been days. unknown thirty years ago, Jeff. Completely unknown, like McCann, um, as would Ian Andrew, as would a whole bunch, Riley Johnson, a lot of these guys would be complete unknowns, but they're not unknowns anymore. People have actually got, perhaps the most telling thing is, golfers have actually got the interest. They've got the thirst to know, and it's just that yeah. finally they're being dished up the content. Um, well, I think that's an important point. I mean, in my travels across North America working, I am actually seeing, you know, I started working for Whitman 20 years ago, 
uh, went off on my own 10 years ago. So I've got two decades of experience hanging around these clubs. And, and I really do see that a generation, the next generation of guys between, you know, 25 and 45, um, they're into listening to Derek and listening to you guys and listening to the fried egg. And, um, there's, there's so much more awareness about golf course architecture and the great golf courses of the world now, um, even compared to five years ago, definitely 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. So all of the, all of this media stuff and, and a little bit more attention being paid to golf course architecture, I think is going to be huge as we move forward. I mean, another decade from now, mm. um, when those particular guys are, are the people or guys and girls are the particular people on the committees, the boards, uh, the superintendents, the club managers and the pros who listen to all this stuff. I, I think there's going to be a, uh, it's going to make a huge difference in the in the in the next uh, you know ten years or and more. I agree. I'm optimistic because it's all to the good of the game. Doesn't mean everybody has to agree, but if everybody's got an interest, you're going to get better outcomes. People- <laughs> well, right, and it's as I said earlier. I think it's it's more most importantly, it's just the context too, right? Yeah. Like if you come into the committee meeting with some better context, I think it's gonna it's the results are going to be much much better. Yeah. People do seek out this information now. I think there is an interest in it. Um, yeah, I, I've got a, actually a golfing highlight. Oh, the fantastic! Um, I played at uh, Northbridge Golf Club here in Sydney on Saturday, which is a no wonder you look tired. It's <laughs> it is a very taxing golf course. Yeah. It's like every single shot is very demanding. You've got a um, it's it's a funny course on a ridiculous hill with very thick scrub, and there's barely any playing surfaces to it's see. It's a genuinely absurd place for a golf course. It, kind, it really is. Kind of is part of the appeal of it. It's <laughs> extremely taxing. Every single shot is mentally and physically exhausting. It's a very hard walk, and it's, but it's only you know, par 64 or something, but you're completely exhausted by the end of it. Um, and uh, we got about halfway through. The New South Wales high-performance uh, women were there, actually, like just they're, doing fitness work. No, they're, the they're going around. Um, they're going around playing a bunch of courses in in Sydney, oh, and uh, I think you know they're getting ex- broadening their experience. So these very good girl golfers were there, and uh, one of them was in a group behind me. And uh, to your story earlier, Jeff, I, there's this ridiculously long par three there, 230 meters. Um, uh, with a dam on one side of the green and out of bounds on the oh, other side of the yeah, green, yeah, the eleventh yeah, yeah. at Northbridge. If anyone's familiar with it, it's a nightmare scenario. And with, depending on the wind, it can be driver or three wood, or it, very rarely it's anything uh, shorter than a three iron. It's it's always it always plays very long, and uh, I I I invariably just dump it in trouble, like the dam or the out of bounds or something. So. This time I've played seven iron off the tee. I've decided I've played it as a par four. Nice. Oh, I, love it. So I've played love seven it. iron off the tee into this big, there's a big wide open uh, piece of, of fairway before the dam. And uh, I only had like a little 50 metre pitch from there. And uh, it was an easy four. Anyway, as I was walking off that tee, uh, one of the high performance girls there, uh, I said to her, it's a crazy golf course, isn't it? And she looked at me and said, crazy? It's fun. And I thought... <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's that's yeah, good. That's good for you. Good on you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, that's my little. That's golf the F highlight. word we don't have enough of in golf. Yeah. We've got plenty of the other, but we don't remember fun. Yeah. Have you got a golf highlight for us, Jeff? We try to have a golf highlight each week. I never have one because I don't play anymore enough. Oh man, I've got plenty um, from this week. 
<laughs> well, we were just talking about the old course. I tell this story all the time, and you know, it speaks to. I, I just was describing the old course as being a landscape for golf rather than eighteen individual holes. And you know, I, I'm a big fan of that intimacy that 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 type of golfing experience provides. And I'll never forget playing the eleventh hole, the Eden hole, in a gale. Um, at the old course, uh, hit my tee shot, come down off the tee. You've got to cross the seventh fairway and a foursome playing seven was crossing just as we were heading to the 11th green. And a guy walked up to me and asked me for a light for a cigarette. And I thought, how cool is this? You know, there are so many golfers at my home club in North America that would think that this was so stupid. And I just got the biggest charge out of a guy and another foursome as we're crossing holes, asking me to give him a light as he wanted to smoke a cigarette. And I thought, you know, this is what golf is about. It's about people being together, seeing each other, seeing other groups, seeing as many flags as you can possibly see across the landscape. I mean, there's an intimate element about golf that I think is uh, like that. That's really, really important. And is, oh, especially over here is often lost by the exclusivity and people wanting individual holes closed off. So you don't see other people. And, you know, I often get that charge, you know, how do we not see golfers over here? How do we separate these two tees that are adjacent to each other? And, and my gut instinct is always like, why are we trying to separate everything? Why are we trying to block everything off? I mean, I actually want to talk to the people, my buddy who's teeing off next to me on, on an adjacent hole. Um, so I'll never forget that experience at, at the old course, just, just having that much of a, a uh, interaction <laughs> with a group playing seven as I'm crossing them on the 11th. Um, I don't know why that sticks in my mind, but I just feel like that's golf to me. It's, it's better than my experience playing that hole for the first time where I've, no, I've no, come I, over the hill I, there I and like I didn't. Girls, I like the girl's reaction to your comment, though. You know? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that was just, great. Fun. It's fun. It's not not crazy. It's fun. Yeah, when I was when I first played the seventh at the old course, I I knew what to expect and everything, but I still got lost. Yeah. And I hit it towards the eleventh green, <laughs> and I ended up in fog. I ended up in hill bunker, and I had to play. I had to get out of hill bunker, the deepest bunker on the course, basically, to try and get to the seventh green. And I, I think I went to shell bunker then, and it was a, it was a nightmare. You're an idiot. That's the that's the yeah. price you pay for being cheap <laughs> and not taking a caddy. What the game is, and what you pointed out there, Jeff, is that it is actually counterintuitive golf at almost every level you hit down to make it go up you hit it left to make it go right everything about the game essentially is counterintuitive and what you're describing is counter you think you want these 18 holes of yes. isolation yeah. actually what you want is just great no, big no boundaries yeah. exactly it's just a strategy the 14th at the old course i think epitomizes that yeah better than anything. that and the 13th at augusta that those two par fives everything that's great about golf can be found in those two holes i think but that little piece of ground actually where the 11th and 7th crossover at the old course that's one of those sacred places i think where you you speak to some people about it and they're like, oh, yeah, that, that would be on my list of places where I'd have my ashes yeah. scattered. Well, <laughs> no, that's- all of St Andrews, and we talked about this after you went there for the first time, thinking that you were just going to wander past and have a look before realising your mistake. It's kind of spiritual, isn't it, Jeff? If you're a golfer, I, I think you know you're a golfer once you've been to St Andrews because it touches you in a way that it, it couldn't touch non-golfers. And I suspect a lot of people go to St Andrews, play the old course, perhaps aren't touched that way, but for those who are, it's a spiritual experience, I reckon. Um, undoubtedly. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds sort of, you know, I try not to 
It's only golfers tell listening. Tell those to, to people who I know might not understand it because it sounds a bit dramatic and a little bit too romantic. Yeah, yeah but it's true. Yeah. I mean, you I, I got someone who loves golf, right? And I mean love golf. Like playing golf is like 15% of my enjoyment in golf, right? I got architecture. I got travel. I got literature. I've got podcasts. I've got – and St. Andrews offers – all of those things, right? You're not just there to tee it up. And as soon as you finish on the 18th hole, you leave, you've got to, as you just, you just said, and you, there's a feeling, there's a, there's, there's an experience beyond just playing the old course uh, and the other courses in that, in that little town. That's, it's tough to describe, but. Certainly. It's an intangible, yeah. isn't it? And, and, and you know, yeah, you, you can feel it. It's like that old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not after it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you wouldn't have to be paranoid. That's exactly, if they right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Just because you're inflicted doesn't mean that there's uh, that that it's uh, that it's wrong. Jeff, been great to catch up. We've taken more of your time than I meant to, but it's been lovely to chat. We'll definitely have you back at some point. We might have a Canadian edition where we will get you and mm. Ian Andrew, and you can have the great Thompson v McCann face off. That'd be fantastic. We can sit back nah, and spectate. Yeah, be great. But thanks for taking the time today, mate. Really enjoyed it. Hey guys, I always enjoy your your podcast, and I'm flattered to have been asked to uh, to come on. So thanks so much. It's a sickness for which there is no treatment, unfortunately, Jeff. We do hope that you recover. Logue, been great to have you along today, as always. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rod. And that's episode 51 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. If you happen to still be with us, in the books, we'll be back again to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.